welcome to another week of Antidote Stories in Medicine. I am your host, Christine. It is great to have you guys back. I have been loving seeing all the new countries that have been popping up. It's so amazing the idea that people are listening to this podcast all over the world. Still no Antarctica. We're working on it, but it hasn't happened yet. Thank you again for everyone that has been interacting in the Facebook group. It's really growing, and I love just talking to people and hearing your own little stories. Of course, thank you so much to everyone that has been leaving reviews. It's really funny. I can see when we make little blips on the charts, and it's always after you leave a review and there's a bunch of downloads, and it's like very fleeting, like (laughs) at 3 a.m., we're on the charts. Um, So I would like to be on there for a little bit longer than 3 a.m., but it's great. I'm so flattered that we're up there. It's really incredible. I just had no idea that the podcast would become this, and I'm so grateful for all of you guys that that keep listening. So please just keep reaching out. I'm going to keep responding to you as much as I can and in any way that I can. And people have also been suggesting episode ideas or ideas for episodes. So please keep doing that. I really want to hear what you guys want to listen to. And people have been saying, hey, I've got a really cool story. Let's record. I'm totally down to do that. And we have really great episodes coming up because of that. So please just keep doing it. I'm so happy to doing this and bring you another great story this week. So this week is actually an old friend of my sister's. She has been a nurse for several years now in an emergency room. So this week is Liz. Hi, Liz. How you doing? I'm good. How are you, Christine? Thanks for having me on the podcast this week. So Liz, you went right to school for nursing, kind of the more traditional route. Yep. I, I went to nursing st- school straight from high school, did a traditional four-year um, like undergrad and graduated with my nursing degree. And what did you do out of nursing school? What was your first job? Straight out of nursing school, I did med-surge. I did that for about a year and a half. And then I... Okay. Um, which is just like kind of more general inpatient. I worked at a big hospital. We, My floor focused on lung transplants. Oh, okay. And after like a year and a half, I was a charge nurse. I was orienting new nurses and I was ready for a change. And I decided to go into emergency nursing and I've never looked back. So what drew you to emergency medicine? Obviously, med surge is hard, but it's it can be grinding. I like that it's something different every day. It's a different diagnosis, a different patient. Like literally no two days are ever the same in emergency medicine. Yeah, yes, that is very true. And it's pretty pretty fast paced, which I that's what I loved about it. Yeah. You could go from zero to 60 and have no idea it's coming. Oh, very, very quickly. Yeah. And you work in a really big ER. I do. I work at, it's, um, it's about 70 beds. It's a level one trauma center. So we're a rece- the receiving facility for a bunch of the smaller community hospitals in the area that don't have certain services 24-7, like neurosurgery, the cath lab, the the trauma team. So yeah, we're, we're always getting patients. At, even at 2 a.m., we're getting transfers from the smaller community hospitals. Your hospital was one of the ones that we used to bring a lot of patients to when I worked on the ambulance. Oh, yeah. We would do all of those transfers, the stat transfers at three o'clock in the morning when somebody had something really bad happen in the the community hospital, didn't have a neurologist on staff, a neurosurgeon. Yeah. Just you kind of touched on it, but explain what a level one trauma center is compared to, you know, level two, level three. A level one trauma center, we have pretty much every service available to us 24-7. A lot of the smaller hospitals that we receive patients from don't even have neurosurgery, don't have the um, a cath lab 24-7. We have to have those things available 24-7. So we always have a neurosurgeon on call. We always have a cardiologist on call. We always have a neurologist on call. Um, you name the specialty, we always have someone there on call. Not even on call. They're there in the hospital. Yeah, they're in the hospital. Yeah. And they're just capable to receive those patients at any time. Absolutely. Yep. 
It's really impressive. And we mentioned that you work at a level one in Boston. And for many cities, that would be one hospital. Yeah. But Boston has multiple. It, it, yeah. So, and it's actually really interesting when we're getting traumas, it's like, how do they choose which hospital to go to? And I mean, the trauma transfers, my hospital or most of the hospitals in the area will affiliate with within other hospitals. So there's like certain healthcare yep. systems. Yeah. But even when EMS is bringing you a patient, it's just kind of interesting. You're like, is this closest? Is this a patient preference? Like, how are they choosing to bring this patient here? Is it stability? Yeah, that's actually what it is. Yeah. Or it's a variety of all of the above. Yeah. So I actually shed some light on that. So patient preference or uh, closeness, we would pick hospitals that we liked too for EMS. Yeah. Depending on how stable they were, if they were really unstable, it was the closest facility, the, the closest appropriate facility. That's the big key word there. You know, we're not going to a little community hospital if we're having a stroke. They need to go to one of those big level one centers. But if it's a cardiac arrest, you have to go to the closest hospital, regardless of what it is mm-hmm. that has an emergency room. But yeah, if it's a really big trauma, but they're stable enough to have a decision or there's actually two level ones basically right next to each other in your area. Yes. <laughs> where you are. Yes. Uh, and when it comes to that, if the patient or their family can make a decision, they'll say, I want to go to hospital A or hospital B. And in EMS, we go. Yeah, right, whatever. And in Boston, you have that choice. Yeah, there's like five huge level one trauma centers within like a three mile radius of each other in Boston. And I think three pediatric level one ERs? There are. That's actually one thing that's interesting to where I work is that we don't have pediatrics. So sometimes people will bring their kids in and we'll be like, yeah, you're stable, but you need to go someplace else. (laughs) But the pediatric level one trauma centers for you is like literally across the street. Literally across the street, yeah. It's so funny that like, why would you, a parent choose your hospital when? I think, so we do have labor and delivery there. So I think a lot of yeah. parents are like, oh, I delivered my baby here. So let me just take them back here. That's what I've noticed the most. Yeah, that might be it. Yeah. I think I had, so a good friend of mine delivered a child there and the child had some pretty significant complications during birth and was immediately sent over yeah. to the other one. And the child did very, very well. Good. It would not have done well if they had not been in such a proximity to the amazing facilities that are in Boston. We are very, very fortunate to have so many fantastic facilities in Boston. I work in D.C. now, and it just kind of boggles my mind that there are not as many level one trauma centers. I know. One of my former colleagues is now a travel nurse, and she was telling me that like it takes it can take two hours to transport a patient from home to the nearest hospital. And that just boggles my mind. Yeah. You get so spoiled working in Boston when you have all of these options. Yeah. And when you work in EMS, hospitals can they can go on divert for certain services. Like they don't have capability like they won't have any more neurosurgical capabilities for certain traumas. Yeah. And it's not as common as it used to be. Hospitals used to go and divert all the time. Like this is like 10 years ago or so. Now there's stricter rules about when they can do it. But, you know, in, if a hospital says, nope, we're on divert for this, they're on divert. You can't bring them there. Yeah. And in Boston, you go, okay, well, I'm going to pick the other four level one trauma centers. Yeah. So you have those those choices. I mean, other places are like, well, what do I do? Yeah. You know, they're going to go someplace else. It's just, you're really privileged just to have so many great facilities there. Yeah. So, what has it been like working in the ER? What have you really enjoyed about it? What have been the hard things? And So one of the things that's just 
it's rewarding, but it's interesting. I work at a teaching hospital. So we started mm-hmm. off with brand new doctors straight out of med school. <laughs> and I hate to say they don't know anything, but they, th- they say, hey, I'm a doctor. I, I'm brand new. And like, I'm going to order all these fancy tests. And, yeah. you know, I've been there five years or four years now. And I kind of scratched my head. And I'm like, why, why do we need this? So it's really rewarding to watch the doctors grow and develop over their residency and then become attendings. Yeah. I had an interesting case a couple of months ago where the I was working with an intern and he was just like, he was very, very convinced like we could do, so my patient needed an MRI and she was in a lot of pain and she was, wasn't going to be able to lay still for it. And I, was, I said to the doctor, I was like, we're going to need to intubate this patient in order to successfully get the MRI to keep her still. And he was like, oh no, no, let's just give her some more morphine. Let's just give her some more morphine. And I was like, so she's gotten a boatload of morphine at this point. Like I would be needing Narcan at this point. Yeah. And he was like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm like, no, it's not, not to say it's not fine, but like this isn't working. More drugs are not the solution. Right. For anyone that doesn't know, MRIs are their magnetic uh, resonance imaging and you have to lay very, very, very still to get a clear picture on the MRI. They're not very forgiving when it comes to movement. Yeah. So why are you going to torture this poor woman going through an MRI to get a bad picture you can't really use? Absolutely. So finally, not even finally, after like an hour, the doctor was like, okay, fine. No more morphine. Let's try. I don't even remember. He was like, let's try some fentanyl, which is a little bit stronger. I was like, I was like, yeah, fentanyl is a great drug, but it's not going to last as long. Like it's still not the solution. Like we need to literally like put this patient in a medically induced coma to keep her perfectly still to get this MRI. Yeah. And it was like, the doctor was like, no, 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 it's fine. Let's just give her some, um, let's just give her the, the fentanyl and send her down. So we did. And l- literally she wasn't even at MRI for 10 minutes before they called me and were like, yeah, she, she needs to come back. You guys need to figure something out. So when she came back, I touched base with the doctor. I was like, you know, she, this, this isn't working. Like, and he was like, okay, well let, let's try another stronger drug. Let's try some ketamine. And I was like, okay. Like, and, and ketamine actually is a great drug. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but like it definitely, it works really well for pain control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's not one that we use very often in the emergency room. So I was like, I've seen it work really well, but I've also just, I'm not familiar with the dosing and the this and the that. Like, so I was like, all right, like we can try that. So we give it and it doesn't really work. She's, you know, 20 minutes later, she was still complaining of the pain. So finally, after like an hour, I was like, she's, nothing is happening. And finally that he was like, all right, like, do you want to do you want to intubate so that we can lay her still to get this? And I was like, yes, I do. Like I've been saying this for hours. And she's already had half of the drugs you would give her for an RSI or a rapid sequence intubation induction anyways. And do you mind me asking what her injuries are? Yeah. So she, um, well, part of the issue with this particular patient is that she had a history of drug use, mm-hmm. of IV drug use, and okay. we need to get an MRI to rule out an epidural abscess. She had, um, they were concerned that she might've had like a spinal infection. Mm-hmm. And the patient told me she shoots up heroin, like giving her fentanyl is not the solution. Right. Because she has probably a really high tolerance. Exactly. And that also brings up a great point of she's got a really high tolerance, but we still need to treat her pain. It doesn't matter what kind of substance use history someone has. You still need to provide them with excellent medical care and adequately treat their pain. And there's also a lot of studies that show that um, substance users, especially opioid users, have heightened responses to pain. Oh, yeah. Kind of this like we don't know if that they have heightened responses to pain and that makes them abuse opioids or the abuse of opioids 
causes them to heighten their heightens their pain. Yeah. So either way, you have to manage their pain, especially if you have an abscess in your brain. Yeah. That's not comfortable. No. So finally, it was probably like two or three hours of me. Not, I don't want to say I was arguing with the doctor, but I was just, you know, it was, I just, if she has this abscess, like we, that's something that's very, very urgent and we weren't going to get a good quality image otherwise. So finally, after hours of saying like, we need to do this in order to get the patient comfortable to get the best quality image that we finally decided to intubate. So we push the RSI drugs, we intubated. And one of the things we do after we intubate is we give post, post sedation medications. Right. And I had asked them, what, you know, what drugs do you want? Normally, we'll use propofol. Sometimes we'll use a f- um, fentanyl and Versed. Yeah. And they said, oh, let's do propofol. And I said, I was like, that's fine, but I'm worried she's going to become hypotensive because propofol is known to lower the blood pressure. Yep. And they're like, oh, no, no, it'll be fine. You have lots of room in her blood pressure. And her blood pressure was like in the 150s. Okay, yeah. But I said, I was like, again, this is a woman with a very high tolerance. I think I'm going to require higher doses of medications to keep her comfortable. Right. So I started the propofol drip. I... I upped it. I started it higher than I would have, and she is bug-eyed, trying to reach for the the tube to pull it out of her mouth. So I up the rate. I up the rate, and finally I get her comfortable. And of course, she's now has a blood pressure in the seventies. Oh no! And you have this. The orders are written so that you're allowed to titrate to effect. I am. Yes. I don't think people realize that nurses can do that. That yeah. you are adjusting the dosing. Oh yeah, a lot of a lot of things are like we have the ability to titrate our medication or some of the drips. We have the ability to titrate to a desired effect. Whether we're titrating vasoactive medications to keep a blood pressure where we want it, we're titrating sedation to keep them at a level of comfort. Yeah, we do have that ability. These are obviously very dangerous medications because you're lowering her blood pressure pretty significantly. I mean, propofol is pretty dangerous if you mess it up. Yeah. So her blood pressure went to 70 systolic, which is the top number. What happened then? Uh, we started some fluids. We, I talked to the doctor and we decided to change the sedation, which was, I think was the appropriate thing. After some fluids and changing the sedation, her blood pressure normalized, was right back in the 120s, right where we wanted it. But it was very frustrating because I had said, I was like, I, I foresaw this happening. And right. they were like, oh, no, no, it's totally fine. And I'm not at all trying to bash doctors because they're every 100% part of the team. And I love them. I love working with them. And this was an intern? It was an intern, yeah. So this is the first year out of medical school? Yeah. Okay. And this was a few months ago. So this was probably July-ish? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, shortly after July. Shortly after July. <laughs> July is the beginning of the medical year, so they just graduated. This is like the first few months of the job for a brand new doctor. So it, it, this is a very sick patient for a brand new doctor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody learns. I mean, I've, I've definitely have made mistakes new in my career, but this is why you listen to nurses. <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, we got her intubated. We got her pain control. We got her, we got her to MRI and she actually did not end up having the abscess they were worried about. Oh, that's good. But, but once we got her up to the ICU, it was because she still had the breathing tube in, she was admitted to the ICU just kind of for further management. I think she was very quickly had the breathing tube taken out. But um, the doctor was like, wow, like, they, like, how did you know all of that was going to happen? And I was just like, I, I've done this a long time. I've, I've seen this sort of stuff happen. And so it was it was like, it was rewarding to kind of, no, no, I shouldn't say it was rewarding, but like, it was just funny because the doctor was like, very, very confident in like, oh, no, I think this is all best. And I was like, are you sure? And um, for him to be like, oh, wow, like, yeah, like this, this di- didn't go as I planned. It is nice to have that reflection. And the recognition that he was had a had a learning moment after working with you. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I mean, and, and like very fortunately, like everything turned out okay for the patient. Like there was, as far as I'm aware from the follow-up that I have, like the patient was discharged a couple of days later. She didn't end up having that abscess. She did have an infection that she was treated with antibiotics and was able to be discharged. So like everything turned out okay. I don't think people realize, I, I know people don't realize what nurses do behind the scenes. No. They don't know that the nurses are behind there advocating for them constantly Yeah, when treatment decisions are being made. It's one of the things that I actually really like about where I work is that as a nurse, I have a lot of autonomy. And the reality is we're a very busy hospital. Patients patients have had to wait. I've seen patients waiting up to six hours from the time they check in to the time they're moved to a room. Yeah, And that isn't even how long it takes the physician to actually see them once they're moved to a room. Right. Um, but one of the things that's really great about where I work is that we really do have great communication with our physicians. And when I'm working in triage, as patients are coming in, if I'm concerned about certain things, I can order some labs. I can order certain diagnostic imaging. So, you know, if I'm in triage and a patient says, oh, I'm coming in with the worst headache of my life, as long as I just kind of run it by a physician and say, hey, this, I'm concerned that they might have a subdural hematoma because when a patient says, I have the worst headache of my life, that's usually a precursor to a big head bleed. So, you know, if I say, hey, they look okay, but they're complaining of this and, you know, maybe they're a little pale, but their vitals are okay, their pupils are still reacting. They're still alert, but you know, do you mind if I just order that CAT scan? And it's usually, yeah, that's fine. Or, you know, we can order labs if the patient says, Oh, I'm just feeling really weak. I haven't been feeling myself. You know, I can order labs, and lo and behold, their hematocrit is 20. And you're like, Oh, yeah, you need a blood transfusion. That's why you feel so weak. Yeah. So it's nice that we do have that autonomy to be able to order things just while they're waiting so that we can kind of get the ball rolling for the patient. And the patient feels more satisfied because they feel like something is being done, even though they're waiting. Yeah. One of the things that I think people don't necessarily realize though is like not to say why they're waiting, but when I work in triage, people will feel very frustrated sometimes when they they're waiting and they see other patients going straight back. Right. I was recently in triage and we had a trauma that did go straight back. It was the patient had fallen several feet. They met the trauma criteria. They went straight back to the trauma bay. And the my patient's sister, I believe it was her sister who was with her, came up to me at the nurse's station. I was like, excuse me, you know, how come these other patients are going back before her? You know, in terms of pain, um, what did she say? She was like, uh, she was like, with the exception of one other patient, no one appears to be in as much pain as my sister. And it was just really interesting. I was like, wow, like you, like not to say you think that you're going back just based on your pain, but like, we're looking at your vital signs. We're looking at the mechanism. Like, why are you here? Is this something that's, you know, what we call a fast track? Do you just need stitches or like an x-ray to rule out a broken bone in your ankle that you might have rolled playing sports? Or are you hemodynamically unstable? You know, we're looking at that. We're not, I mean, yes, of course, pain is a very important factor, but we're looking at a bigger picture. Yeah. I don't think people understand that. And, and they don't, and it's our place to educate them as as professionals. And, but people don't want to hear it because they're, they're in pain. They're uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. They're uncomfortable. And I get it. It's no fun to be in pain. No one likes to be in pain, but it's, you know, you have to treat the life-threatening of injuries first. And also it's really hard for them to rationalize why someone's going back before them when they can't see these really critical injuries. Like you can't see a heart attack, but you can see a broken bone. And exactly. to be completely honest, a broken bone is not as critical as a heart attack. Like you can have a broken bone for a couple hours and not die. You can't have a heart attack for a couple hours and, and not die. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And especially with certain patients, you you can't tell that they're having a heart attack unless you're doing an EKG and you look at them and you go, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. People love to question your judgment all the time. Oh, all the time. 
I recently had a patient who, when she came in, she was just telling me that she had felt like, I forget, oh God, I can't even remember what her complaint was, that she was just feeling like she was young. She was probably my age, so in her like late 20s, and she was just feeling like, tired, low energy, and maybe some like abdominal pain, no past medical history, like young, healthy, 20 some odd year old. Mm -hmm. And after about 20 minutes, she came back to me and was like, I'm feeling really short of breath. I'm just really not feeling good. I was like, all right, well, we, so we have like a set criteria for someone we would get an EKG with and someone, a 20 year old with no history, who's just saying she's having some belly pain is not someone I'm concerned. I'm going to going to be getting an urgent EKG on. Right. So but the fact that she came back, it's not super busy to get an EKG. So it's like, why don't we just get an EKG You just to kind of make you feel better, like make you feel like we're doing something. Right. And she got really upset. She was like, why didn't you do this earlier? And I was like, um, you, like there was, you didn't say anything to warrant me to feel concerned enough to get an EKG. Yeah. And she was like, well, I was feeling short of breath. And I said, you never told me that. And she was like, well, you didn't ask. And it was just like, no, I didn't. But when I asked you why you're here, you never said you were feeling short of breath. And I like, I think people think that I can sometimes read their mind. And I'm like, no, I didn't know you were feeling short of breath. I'm I'm sorry. Like, let's let's get the EKG now. Then, like, yeah, I don't know. It was just it was weird. I was like, so- sorry, I didn't know you were so short of breath. Yeah, like you you're you're not exhibiting. Like you don't have a history of asthma. Your your breathing pattern is normal. You don't sound wheezy. You're speaking in full sentences. Your oxygen saturation is great. Like there was no indicator to me to be like, oh, are you short of breath? And and truth be told, she was ab- like nothing ended up happening. She was fine. She was discharged. She did not have any respiratory illness. But yeah, you sometimes ask questions based on your. You always ask questions based on your physical exam, but if there's nothing in the physical exam that points to it, you wouldn't ask questions necessarily that that aren't pertinent because you're pressed for time. It's a busy ER, you know. It's always past pertinent history, and that's triage is where we tr- where we try to figure out the life threatening injuries, like how sick or not sick are you? Yeah, and then based on that, you know, can she wait or not? Yeah, she could wait. She went back to she. I had her take a seat in the waiting room, and then. She didn't. She ended up going back probably twenty minutes after she got to the emergency room anyway. Like it wasn't like it was a very long wait that day. But you know, my decision at that moment was: Are you sick? Or are you not sick? And she's not one of the ones that is life threatening sick. So, so she didn't get an EKG. She didn't like. I didn't ask as many. I didn't ask more leading questions. You know, are you short of breath? Are you having chest pain? Typically, that's the assessment that we do when the patient is in the room. Yes, you do more detailed assessment in the room. Triage is just like- yeah. The bear. Why are you here? Oh, bear bone. Bare minimum. Yeah. 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 Why are you here? Okay. Great. <laughs> People just don't understand the differences. It's so funny. My sister, um, we took my niece to the emergency room after she whacked her head on a table at the airport. Oh, no. Yeah. She's fine. But she just, she, whoa, she got like some, she got some staples in her head. And then the next morning Ooh. she started vomiting. And nope. um, she got her bell rung pretty good. And so, I said, all right, well, she'd already got the staples, but now she's vomiting and she vomited several times and she was just oh, no. out of it. So I said, let's go to the children's hospital. And my sister is not medical at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's very sweet, not medical. And she's like, well, let's go to the local ER. I'm like, well, they don't have a ped section. So that's not appropriate. Uh, we need to go to the pediatric big hospital because I don't want someone doing a CAT scan on a four-year-old because they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You don't want to expose a little kid like that to radiation. If she needs one to rule out a brain bleed, 
Sure, but I want that decision made by a provider that sees kids with concussions all the time. I don't see kids with concussions all the time. I wouldn't make that decision. But I, yeah, but I don't want her going to the local ER that doesn't have a ped section. So, <laughs> so we, yeah, no. And I think that's one thing that people don't like. They'll just they'll go to their nearest hospital, which is sometimes fine. But like, and I think that sort of comes back to me working at a level one trauma center that we have certain services available to us 24 seven. So that's part of the reason that I think my hospital is so busy because we have those specialties that other hospitals don't have. Yeah. We don't have peds though. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have peds. So we get there. The registration lady is the first person you see in line and the woman, you know, what's your name and everything. And my sister is, she's a business lady. That's such an eighties term. She, (laughs) she, she owns her own business. So she's very organized and she's very very sweet but very intense and the registration lady goes why is she here and my sister just without like she takes a big deep breath and she starts to go well we were at the airport and she hit her head and she had these tables and she goes the whole thing and she said go 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 and i go head injury like this is the registration lady you don't need to tell her the whole story we're going to tell a brief story to the triage nurse at the front desk and then we'll tell more of the story to the triage nurse in the little room And then we'll tell more of the story when we get back to a bigger room in the back. Yeah. My sister was like, what? What do you you mean? I don't tell everyone my life story. I'm like, no, (laughs) we don't. Calm down. We're just, she's okay. She's watching TV. Like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we can wait. She hasn't thrown up in a bit. Yeah. (laughs) But it was just kind of funny to see that and realize, oh yeah, even my very, very well-educated sister, she just, you know, it's your own kid and you don't know and. You know, oh, yeah, she must have been terrified about her daughter. Oh yeah, and I totally, you know, I and when I have patients like that, I try and I try and understand that and I try and educate them that this is how this process is going to work and you know, when you go here, you'll do this and you'll do that. And it, when I worked in EMS, I tried to explain that to you, you know, first we're going to see the triage nurse. I'm going to tell them a little bit about why you're here. We're going to get you into a bed. When you get into the bed, the, the nurses are going to come in and get more of your story and talk to you this is what you can expect because that helps with people's fear. And then they know when, you know, you may wait here. And the more you can tell people about the process, the better, because if they're not used, we do this all the time. We know what to expect. It's easy for us. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I think I've learned as an emergency nurse is that one of my, the techs that I work with, so just someone who works in the department, she asked me, she was like, do you ever get stressed? I was like, yeah, of course. She's like, I've never seen you stressed here. (laughs) And I think the thing that I realized was like, it's not my emergency. It's not my time or place to get stressed. Like yes. I don't, if I got stressed out during a cardiac arrest or during whatever, I wouldn't be functional in my job. Like no. I, I would be like, Oh my God, someone's dying. Like, what do I do? What do I do? I would, not be, <laughs> I would be more of a problem than I am a solution. Like, yeah. I think I'm better at stressful moments than I am at like regular moments. Yeah, I actually agree. Like, I mean, sure, I guess I think we're, we're human. We all get stressed, but just what stresses me out is not what stresses other people out. Oh, so yeah. I think when, when family members are like, well, what do you mean you don't need my whole life story? It's, you know, you're just kind of like, nope, like, let me just let me try to reassure you. Let me help you out. And let me just try to see do what I can do to make your day a little bit better. Yeah, like, I would so I'm so much calmer when there's a cardiac arrest or there's something crazy happening in front of me. There's some massive uncontrolled bleeding that I'm trying to stop. I totally have emergency voice. Yeah. Totally have it. Totally go into this demeanor. Now there's a lot of laundry to do and dishes and my house is dirty. Oh my yeah. God. Stressed out mess. I'm going but, to on vacation on Monday. I still need to pack. But I mean, otherwise, yeah. Before. yeah. Yeah. 
it's throw cardiac arrest in front of me no big deal yeah yeah so my niece like i had come over to check her out after she hit her head and i was like oh yeah she's fine whatever and and then she throws up and then she throws up on top like onto me and my sister's like oh my god and then all of a sudden like i didn't even realize it but my boyfriend was there and kind of called me out on he goes your voice changed and i was like oh yeah emergency christine kicked in it was like this is okay let's just clean her up and we're going to get her in the car and we're going to go to the emergency room now. Yeah. Like I haven't even shot. I go, that's fine. Just put on some clothes. We should leave now though. Should I call 911? No, that's okay. But we would like to go now, (laughs) (laughs) but I can't do laundry. (laughs) Yeah. No, me neither. It is funny too, especially like when your family calls you and they're like, what do I do? What do I do? Like my sister called me like a month ago. And she's like, I was washing dishes and I didn't realize there was a knife at the bottom of the sink and I stabbed myself and it's bleeding. What do I do? I was like, I was like, well, like how bad is it? Like how deep is it? Like, she's like, do I need to get stitches? And so as, as she's freaking out, I'm like, you're fine. Wash it out, put a bandaid on it, hold some pressure. Like how deep is it? Yeah. You might need to go get some stitches. Yeah. Go within six hours. Yeah, oh, but she was, she was so panicked. I was like, you just need a few stitches. No big deal. I definitely think I downplay things, especially with family. I'm like, ah, you're fine, whatever. Yeah. If and when I ever have children, I'm I'm totally going to be that person of like, yeah, walk it off. You'll be fine. Oh, I yes, I am too. My boyfriend and I talk about that all the time. And I was just like, our kids are going to be so screwed someday because they'll probably have like a broken wrist for three days. And I'll be like, oh, you're fine. You're fine. And then finally they'll convince him to take them to the doctor and they'll be like, suspect me of child abuse. (laughs) (laughs) It was, I, uh, when I first moved into this apartment down here, or I first moved in with my boyfriend, he, um, he, his cleaning style is different than mine. We'll say that he, he broke a glass and, um, he decided that like just sweeping it up a little bit was fine and mm-hmm. not like vacuuming up all the glass shards. And so I was like standing barefoot in the kitchen and uh, a huge shard of glass like went into my foot and it was just stuck in there and it was just bleeding everywhere and i was like oh my god this and i was like i am not going to an urgent care for this nonsense i was so pissed off so i i do house calls and stuff and so i was like get my bag he he works with uh cybersecurity and it stuff and not medical at all so i was like you're gonna help me this is your punishment you don't like blood but you're helping me <laughs> and <laughs> get your gloves on that's how you put them on give me my stuff we're s- <laughs> I'm cleaning this. I'm numbing my own foot up and I'm removing glass from my own foot on the kitchen floor because I am not going to the emergency room. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do it. This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember actually I had to go to the ER as a patient and I was like, I sat around for like three hours just trying to decide, do I go? Do I not go? Do I go where I work where they're going to know me? Like, oh yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, it was terrifying. And when I got there, so I ha- ended up having a ruptured ovarian cyst. Oh, no. So I was bleeding and I was just like, I was mortified because it was like, it was a GYN issue. I was like, someone's gonna have to do a pelvic. Like, I got there. I had a, uh, my heart rate was like in the 130s. I was so pale. And by the time I had stopped bleeding, I lost 40% of my blood. Oh, my gosh. And did you go to your own ER? I, I ended up going to my own ER. <laughs> but like, that was literally like, I probably sat around for two hours being like, I'm dizzy. I'm lightheaded. I'm bleeding really profusely. What do I do? I'm like, of course I know I have to go to the ER. If anyone were to ask me that, I would tell them to go to the ER. But I was oh, like, yeah. no, I'm fine. I just don't want to go. And then once I made the decision, I was like, where do I go? 
I don't know if I want to go to where I work. But I don't trust anyone else. I know they're good. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's the reality. I was like, I do trust them. And that's it's such a good feeling, actually. Like, as soon as I got there, they got me right back. My um, my manager came down to see me, which was very embarrassing. But ultimately, she was like, she's like, you're not coming into work tonight. I was like, okay. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll give you some blood and end a night off. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I guess we're talking about our own personal emergency stories. When I moved down here, so embarrassing stories. Uh, I had from moving down here, and you drive a lot. I drive a lot to come down here. It's a long trip, and um, somehow developed a pilonidal cyst. Ooh, which is so super embarrassing confession. So pilonidal cysts are. Basically, there's like layers of skin and they get, they're in your coccyx. So basically on your tailbone from like sitting for long periods of time. So driving back and forth from Boston to DC to like interview and like visit my sister and stuff, you, you just develop them and they can be huge and they can get really infected. And so my first week of work, I had developed this pilonidal cyst oh, that was God. probably the size of like, oh, like a tennis ball. Oh, Yep. It was so painful. And of course, I like my old health insurance had run out. My new health insurance wasn't kicking in yet. And I'm like trying to sit at my new job where I just met everyone in a super small office, like really awkwardly because you can't sit down. Yeah. And oh. I wasn't like, I wasn't telling anyone. I like, I was living with my sister. So I wasn't even like in my own house. It was the most painful thing I have ever had in my life. So what do you do with infected cysts? You have to get them drained. Yeah. And Oh my God. So I went to an urgent care. They tried to drain it. They couldn't. And then I like didn't tell anyone about this. And then I still kept going to work with this. Oh my God. <laughs> and then, then they put me on uh, augmentin because it was infected. It got like the surrounding cellulitis that got a little bit worse. Oh my God. Then it was like finally really needed to be drained. And so I walked into work one day and I told my boss, who was a doctor, who I literally just started working for four days before and it was like I have an infected pilonidal cyst and I'm really febrile and I'm shaking and I'm in so much pain I think I need to go to an emergency room but I don't know where any are and I know there's bad ones but I don't know which ones they are <laughs> and he's like okay well you should go to the one that's really good and it's five minutes down the road it's right around that big circle and I'm like I don't even know where that is <laughs> so <laughs> so I go to the emergency room I get there. And of course, I have to drive there, which is painful. Oh. And then thankfully, it was like seven o'clock in the morning. because that's when I started. Just, no one was there. They took me right back in there. They're like, oh, yeah, we know your boss. And I'm like, yep, great. Everybody knows my boss. <laughs> yep. They're like, who's your primary care? I'm like, I don't have one because I just moved. Because you just moved. Yeah. <laughs> and so the attending goes, oh, where'd you move from? Boston. Oh, I did my residency there. We knew the same people. I was like, yes, medicine's a really small world. I worked for this ambulance company up in Boston that used to contract there. And he's like, oh, I know all these people that work there. And I knew your medical director. And I was like, yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So giant cyst on the coccyx needs to get drained. Thankfully, they medicated me. Oh, thank well. God. Yeah. Thank, thank you, God. There's there is a use for pain medication. <laughs> I will tell you, this was it. And so he has scribes with him. Oh, and he goes, "Do you mind if the scribes watch? They want you know they want to go to medical school. This is why they're getting experience, and this would be really cool for them." And 
you know what? I've been there. I've totally been that student that's like, yeah, I want to I want to see this. I want to see this. And you know what? Getting cis strained, it's really cool to do. I love doing it. It's always oh, very gratifying to watch. And it's so gratifying to watch. And so I was like, <laughs> yeah, of course. And so there's like three scribes that are standing in the room with like, everybody can see my butt. And this guy trains this cyst on my coccyx and it was it was huge and they're like that's so cool and i was like yay education right oh. <laughs> they were like they're like thank you so much and the doc was like yeah i figured you wouldn't mind and i'm like no whatever just yeah you took care of my problem whatever like i got a day off of work and <laughs> yeah but yeah you're just like you totally put things off i probably if i had gotten it taken care of like a week beforehand probably would not have had to get it drained probably would not have been that bad but i was like no this is this is fine i i don't need this yeah (laughs) and now this is gonna be on my podcast it's a totally embarrassing story but whatever yeah anyways (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i think it's just as bad showing up to your er saying i'm bleeding from my vagina for the last six hours and um yeah yeah uh please please do a pelvic on me yeah (laughs) Any more uh, interesting ER stories? Anything that's uh, been really challenging, or what's kind of the one of the biggest adrenaline rushes you've had in the ER? So I love, I like, I mean, I I love like a good trauma, and I hate to like, I yeah. hate to say that, and like, I hate to say that, like, oh, people are really sick, but like, oh, I get it. We recently had, and of course, I mean, seven o'clock a shift change. Literally at six fifty-five, the radio went off saying, "Hey, this is whatever ambulance. We're five minutes out with a." 65-year-old woman. She was hit by a high-speed car while she was trying to cross the road. She is, um, we can't get a blood pressure on her. She was intubated in the field. And so, of course, you know, I've worked all night and I just, I hear that radio and I am like, you just, you get into like go mode, you know, we're we're getting ready to the rapid fluid infuser. We're getting blood ready. We're getting ready to put in big IVs and and when she gets there, I mean, she was sick. And like, literally, as we're getting there, and it's funny, because the, the night team who was getting ready to go, we heard the radio report as the day team is coming on. So now there's so many people in the room. <laughs> Everybody wants to play. All there. Were, it's all hands on deck. It was kind of a, it was, it was a really well run trauma. Because there were so many people there. And I mean, like the traumas are normally very well staffed. But there was right. so many extra people there that like, Everything was just so seamless. Like we ran the trauma quickly. We got IVs in her. We got her blood because she was very hypotensive. We um, we got her to imaging. She ended up having a broken pelvis, which is why she was so hypotensive. We got her up to the OR. It was just it was such a grat. Like everything went so well and so smoothly that morning. Yeah, I love those big traumas, and it's again, I don't love them because I feel really terrible for the patients. Oh, absolutely, but like the adrenaline rush you can't beat it like you talk about that radio call like being the one making that radio call oh yeah like flying across like a big bridge in boston coming in and it's like middle of night it's it's an adrenaline rush i remember there was um one morning that we heard the radio call go off and you know when you give and you probably can attest to this better than me but when you give the radio call it's like you're telling us like the age and the sex of the patient you know like their um mechanism of injury what's what you've done 
Yeah, I, I feel like they gave us like the patient's blood pr- vital signs first, and it was, it was fine. And then they get to the point, oh, the patient was run over by a train and has a partial amputation of their leg. And we're just like, what? Like, was not expecting that when the radio went off. <laughs> so the same sort of adrenaline. We're all just like, all right, let's uh, let's get ready. Activate the trauma team. <laughs> yeah, I used to usually call it in with like, and this is totally an example. It would be like 45-year-old female trauma alert. Yep. So you knew it was a trauma first. Yep. Struck by a train, then unresponsive amputation, vitals are this. Yeah. Intubated ACLS protocols. Yeah. Et cetera. Yeah. Be so there we- five. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or actually, I mean, some, the one of the really funny things too about Boston is that a lot of things are so close. Some of the traumas, to, again, depending on the mechanism, they'll drive from twenty minutes away because they recognize that we're the better facility to take them to than the closer hospital. Right. right. But like we had an EMS brought us a patient that they said like cardiac arrest, uh, we're actually pulling into your driveway right now just because of how close everything is in Boston. By the time they were able to move that patient to radio us in, they were already there just because everything's so close. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll be ready. We'll see you when you in two seconds. Well, sometimes also when, when it comes to CMED, you have to hail CMED first on CMED 4. Then CMED says, okay, you wait. And then CMED calls up the hospital. So CMED will go, okay, change channel seven. CMED calling BI. Yeah. Standby rings you up. They ring you up. And then and then I say, online, go ahead. Right. And so that may have been five minutes. So that transport time is gone. And they're like, yep, we're in your parking lot. Yeah. Actually, my favorite too is when, as they're on the radio, you can just hear the, the beep, beep as they're backing up into the ambulance <laughs> bay. <laughs> yeah. I see you. Yeah. Sometimes when it was really crazy... I would hail CMED on the the main channel and just be like, CMED, can you drop me a note? Because I don't have time for this. Yeah. And usually that was if there was like um, a combative patient in the back Mm -hmm. and CMED would hear someone in the background going, yeah. And they're like, yeah, we, we got it. We'll, we'll call them for you. (laughs) I'm like, great. Yeah. Age, sex, combative patient. Combative will be there and be there soon. Have security present. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I think you probably get this too. Honestly, at this point, like so little things phase me. Like I just feel like I've seen it all that I'm just like, okay, yep, whatever. Yeah. And when something comes in that's abnormal and you're like, oh, I'm impressed. (laughs) Yeah. So actually, believe it or not, one of the things that I just recently had that was... And not that it's that normal or abnormal, but it was like, it was probably one of the sickest patients I've had in a while. It was a really sweet guy. He is on Coumadin, which is a blood thinning medication. Mm-hmm. And he had had some dental work. And somehow, some way, he ended up with a posterior nosebleed. Mm-hmm. So nosebleeds can be um, anterior or posterior. Anterior ones, you can typically like put pressure on your nose and it'll stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. And the posterior ones are the ones that like drip down your throat. There's concern for airway. And this guy was like, I just, I feel like I'm swallowing the blood. He then starts coughing up these big, huge blood clots. Like we ended up intubating him for his airway protection. But like I was in there probably every 10 minutes suctioning giant clots out of him. Like I literally ended up filling an entire suction container of blood from this guy's nosebleed. Oh my gosh. I was like, we need to do something just to secure this airway because he keeps coughing up this blood. Yeah. That's not good for your stomach. No. And like, or your, I mean, or your lungs or anything. Yeah. But like, and it was interesting because like he came in like, Hey, I'm, my nose is bleeding and like seemingly well appearing guy. Yes, of course, obviously he's on a blood thinner and he's has a nosebleed. So that's concerning. But I was like, wow, I'm like, this turned around really quickly. Yeah. This was not what I expected. 
Yeah. I was like, oh, I thought we were going to like put in a rhino rocket, send you home. I was like, this did not go as expected. <laughs> that reminds me of a patient I actually brought to your facility many, many years ago. And this middle-aged, older middle-aged gentleman, he called 911. He was like, oh, I was coughing up blood. And you're like, all right, well, fine. That's like urgent, but not like yeah, really emergency. But like, we'll, we'll bring you to the emergency room. And so he, we were kind of far away from your facility mm-hmm. and he requested you guys. There was other level ones in between you mm-hmm. and us. So we're like, yeah, cool. We'll go to you. And he had had like some bloody tissues with him. So I was like, okay, yeah, definitely concerning. Like whenever someone's coughing up blood, you think of, you know, a malignancy or a really severe infection or maybe they just have a really bad nosebleed and they're coughing and things are really dry and that's they're just actually coughing up from their their nose and not Mm -hmm. their lungs but whatever still needs to get checked out yeah vitals were pretty stable although his heart rate was a little bit quick you know not bad Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden as we're in boston he's like i'm gonna be sick and vomit he vomits up an entire emesis bag full of blood oh bright red blood yeah so Right, red blood. It has not touched the acid of the stomach yet, so it's probably from the esophagus. Yep. And a, an amesis bag, like the vomit bags, are those like, are big. That's like a, like a liter. A liter, yeah. And then he did it two more times. Oh boy. And then his blood pressure started dropping, and we had not called a note into you guys because your facility is so busy. You only call in notes when it's really significant. Yeah. So we're like, oh shit step it up, call in a note now. And we were like right there and it ended up being a trauma note. And we're like, we have all this blood <laughs> in bags. Because <laughs> we're like, well, what are we doing with this in an ambulance? Like, three amesis bags full of blood. <laughs> this guy just, and he, he looked at me and goes, do you think it was something I ate? And I was like, oh, no, no, I do not. Maybe care. did you drink, end up with the varices? I think he was probably an esophageal varices, yeah. which is a rupturing of a blood vessel in the, um, Esophagus. Yeah. Your trauma team was very impressed. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, why don't you call us sooner? And I was like, well, he wasn't doing this earlier. (laughs) And that's like, that's one thing that's crazy about emergency medicine is like people can flip in like in the blink of an eye. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't generally get that in primary care. You get, you can, you definitely can get the things that walk in and you're like, oh, that is not what we expected at all. But you get more of the chronic, you get the hidden things that you find. Mm -hmm. You find a lot of like cancers and stuff that people didn't know about Mm -hmm. that you do find. And that's, that's exciting. And again, not exciting as in I enjoy it because I don't want people to suffer. But you're figuring out why they're not feeling well. Right. I enjoy the process of figuring out what's wrong with someone. I enjoy that kind of intellectual pursuit and problem solving. We find a lot of those and that hidden, like what is causing this, the disease process. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of that. Yeah. We find that, but nothing like all of a sudden we find it in esophageal varices or something. Exactly. Yeah. Whoa. Crazy. But I mean, a lot of what we do too, is like, we don't see that every day either. Right. Even in a big hospital like that. Yeah. Yes. Actually, just yesterday, I had a patient who he'd come with like intermittent chest pain. And so we always get an EKG whenever a patient says they're having chest pain. His EKG was normal. We did labs on him and his troponin was negative. The troponin is a cardiac enzyme that's released from the heart when you're having a heart attack. And as he was, um, we'd like to do them like what we call serially. So we usually do them every like four, four to six hours. 
he was like at like three and a half hours she was just like no like my chest pain is back and it's like it's crushing we're like and like he was he didn't he was like starting to get pale a little sweaty we're like you don't look so great let's just get another ekg right now let's so we got the ekg and it was showing st elevations which is a heart attack exactly so we contacted cardiology and literally the cardiologist was looking at the first one from three and a half hours prior and the second one that we had just done and he was like i don't think i've ever seen a patient like actively having a heart attack like an evolving heart attack right in front of me in the er like he was like that was impressive (laughs) and this is a cardiologist at a world-renowned hospital that's impressed yeah exactly and he probably went right to the cath lab we brought him right up and i I mean this was yesterday at like five o'clock so i don't actually know how he turned out but i'm sure like he was in the right place at the right time yeah that's good luck yeah that is a patient paying attention to their symptoms unlike you and i oh yeah but i'm like like no no no, i'm fine don't mind me with my hematocrit of 24 (laughs) (laughs) and dropping (laughs) yeah the the worst thing about it is that i was actually supposed to run a marathon like 10 days later oh no (laughs) and so i was like i was like no 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 i can't be sick so when i was there i asked I was like, oh, it was like, I was like, oh, you know, we always transfuse anyone who's hematocrits under 25. And the doctor was like, oh, no, no, like, you're young, you're healthy, you're gonna bounce right back. And I was like, um, I'm supposed to run a marathon. Like, can can we do anything? And they're like, no, no, no. They're like, I think it's better that you don't. And I was like, oh. but the reality is, like, that's what they would tell any patient. And I'm like, but I don't want to listen. I never take my own medical advice. Right. <laughs> Most <laughs> patients just want some IV fluids. You want some uh, blood. <laughs> yeah. Give me your blood. <laughs> yes, please, please and thank you. I'm a positive. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, do you have any other stories or... I mean, I could probably go on for hours, but I think the listeners are probably getting bored. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know. I think we could probably just keep going back and forth. And this is always what happens. People are like, I don't think I have really anything to talk about. And I'm like, just wait. I think we'll be able to. Oh, yes, you do. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I said that at the beginning. I was like, what do you want to talk about? I don't have any like stories that stick out in my mind as like, ooh, this patient or that patient. Yeah. No, it's totally, it's medics war story time. That's what happens. Yeah. Everyone is like, that reminds me of this thing. Yeah. Everyone says the exact same thing. And it's like, nope. We got stories for days. And the problem is, is like I tell stories and then I edit them out because like sometimes I tell them and they're just really terrible or I just yeah. like cut them out for time because there's better stories in the episode. Yeah. And so then I kind of forget which ones I've already told. And so then I'm like, oh. no, I think I cut that one out. So I think I can tell that one. So if I ever repeat <laughs> stories, I'm sorry. That's why. I'm sorry. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday to talk to me. And I hope you uh, have a good Christmas party. <laughs> tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. This was so much fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you guys have any questions for me or questions for Liz, join our Facebook group, Antidote Stories and Medicine Podcast Group. Uh, There's the Facebook page, but then also the Facebook group. So join the group and I'm going to be posting some stuff there and maybe Liz will join us and you can ask her some questions about being an ER nurse. Definitely. And then also check us out on Instagram, Antidotes Podcast. Twitter is Antidotes Pod. My Twitter is Christine the NP. And of course, thank you as always to Peter Hopkins, who does our custom intro music. Check him out at PeteSingsThings.com. You can always reach out to me at email as well at antidotespodcast at gmail.com and please keep leaving those reviews they really mean so much to me they really help the podcast grow and share these episodes if you like an episode send it to your friends please share the podcast it really um it really helps so thank you guys so much i will see you all next week 